The 2002 SDCF Symposium Panel entitled The Director-Writer Relationship, Working on Musical Revivals, explores the difference between directing a revival and directing a new musical. The following program is a recording of the conversation that took place. Hello, I'm SDC Director-Choreographer Edie Cowan, and you are listening to Masters of the Stage. This program is produced by the Stage Directors and Choreographers Foundation and presented by the SDCF and the American Theatre Wing. The SDCF has released these archives in an effort to further education regarding the crafts of direction and choreography. Because this program was not initially recorded for the purpose of broadcast, it is not of the highest technical quality. Portions of the conversation may have been edited to improve the overall quality of the broadcast. I'm going to introduce a woman who I have known for less than a year, but who I feel like I've known my whole life. She's a wonderful woman. She's become a great friend. She is the vice president and the senior counsel of the Rogers and Hammerstein organization. She, her parents, Shepard and Mildred Traub, were uh, instrumental in the founding of SSDC, the Director and Choreographers Union. We have a fellowship named in their honor. So without further ado, I give you the beautiful and talented Vicki Traub. very sweet. It's wonderful to be here. Uh, I thought that the last panel gave us just some fascinating insights into the collaborative process in the musical theater. Um, and it's been my experience that just because you're doing a revival doesn't mean that it isn't a collaboration. And um, we have here we have here three wonderful directors, and two of them are also choreographers. Um, you haven't met Jeff Calhoun. You met Bobby Longbottom and Susan Schulman earlier. Um, so I'm going to ask them, I, I think what we're really going to talk about here is how is directing or choreographing a revival different from doing a new show, and how is it the same? Um, and I think maybe I'd like to jump in with Jeff who is in the process of, right now, working on a revival of Big River that is a rather special case. Would you tell us about that? It is a special case. Uh, for those of you who were here last night, we talked a little bit about it. Before I, I continue with that, I want to answer, though, your first question. Uh, there are no generalities, of course, generalizations, but there's no difference between directing a revival and directing a new show 99% true. As if there's no difference in directing your high school musical, your community theater musical, your college musical, your summer stop musical, or your Broadway musical. People who haven't done Broadway shows yet think there's some magic. It's all the same game. You know, I think no one's going to dis this, I hope, but I can disagree. It's all the same you thing. You lose more money. You lose more money. <laughs> <laughs> but other than that, so just so you know, you, no matter where you've done it, you've already done it, and that's really, I wanted to preface with that. It is the same. Now, of course, there are going to be distinctions with each show. Um, the particular one that Vicki's talking about, I alluded to last night, which is a theater called Deaf West. And what makes this interesting is that half the cast is deaf and half the cast is hearing. But it is a show for hearing audiences. In other words, every line is voiced. 
It might not be voiced by the actor who's signing it, but you will hear every line, you'll hear every note of the score, and every lyric. And so it's, uh, it was a happy accident stumbling upon this. Uh, I, I hate to repeat myself for those of you that were here last night, but quickly in a, in a, in a fast stroke. I was asked to come to this small 99-seat equity waiver theater in Los Angeles on Lancashire Boulevard called Deaf West. And they said, you can do any show you want to do. The stipulation is that half the cast will be deaf. And after the myriad of jokes between my friends and I, I agreed to do it. And it was the most fascinating experience of my entire life, being that we're in the visual arts. I've yet to find anything as visual as working with the deaf and hearing impaired. It's really, and as a, from a choreographic standpoint, it is a ballet of sorts. It's so beautiful. Uh, I'd be hard-pressed to find a moment as beautiful as this little eight-year-old deaf boy signing, Where is Love? I mean, you can imagine. See, goosebumps. <laughs> you know, now, that's not me. That's just a happy accident of this wonderful thing. And so, uh, you know, you start out in this career, and, and, you, and you, you're young, and you're idealistic, and you, you want to do things that have never been done before, right? then you do it long enough to realize that everything's done before. And what are the chances that you're really going to be standing in the back of the theater during your show and going, never seen that before. <laughs> and what I can say, and again, not because of me, but because of the situation, I can honestly say that. It's, it's the most proud I've been of anything that I've ever done. I stand in the back and I'm watching the deaf and culture and the hearing culture together. And it's one of the most beautiful things that, I, that, that I've ever seen. And the only frame of reference we have prior to this is in our hearing theater. We have signed performances where they stand off to the side. And we think that kind of we're doing deaf and hearing impaired a favor, but we're really not because they have to watch the signing. So they miss the show. They don't get to see any of it. In our theater, hearing theater, you can have four, five, six, 20 things going on on stage at the same time, and it's okay. In this particular style of theater, it's like a camera, and you're, you have to be looking where the signing is. So that's your focal point, and how you throw that focus from signing to signing becomes the choreography and the blocking within the show. And it's really remarkable. I'm sorry that was a long-winded kind of way of telling you about it. Yeah, but I'm I, passionate about it, as you can tell. I'd like to ask you one question. Um, have, has the nature of this production required changes in the book and in, or in the score? Yes. This is a tricky subject, too, but we're here to be very honest, and uh, I've never been known for not putting my foot in my mouth, so I'll be honest. It's been a good excuse to change things that otherwise you wouldn't be allowed to change. Um, well, they're deaf. We had to do that. <laughs> so, um, I don't know if that's exactly what you're asking, but... <laughs> When you're doing a revival, this really probably gets down to the biggest difference. Is that the show had, it's like leftovers. A revival in many ways, and I love leftovers. But it is like leftovers, and you can take it out of the refrigerator, and then it's up to you to figure out how you want to give it some fresh herb to make it seem like it's new. And um, that's the hardest part about doing a revival, is how far you can go, because with each show it's different. Is the author still alive? makes a big difference. Are you dealing with the author? If the author's not there, maybe you're dealing with the widow. Maybe you're dealing with the lawyers from the estate. 
and you get permission for everything, and this is all information. I didn't know until I did a revival. It's a tricky, I would say that's the most difficult part about a revival, is how much can you change it to feel like you're putting your stamp on it, and how much won't they let you change it. Uh, I don't think change is good necessarily just to change, so hopefully in your mind you think you are making it maybe more like having your finger on the pulse of what's happening now. For me it was Greece, which I loved originally, but since Greece came something called MTV, and the attention of kids was different, and so what I tried to, now again, now this sounds antiquated now, but at the time, Greece, now I'm going back eight years, I felt like we hadn't seen that yet on Broadway, which numbers that looked like MTV. And so I thought it was a good, Greece seemed appropriate, that kind of music to do that. So um, I jumped around a little, but uh, Big River we changed because it was three hours long on Broadway. And practically, I think that's the reason a lot of people don't do the title of Big River. That's a very long evening for anybody. You know, Nicholas Nickleby barely gets away, you know, and that's a masterpiece. So what I tried to do the most is make it a shorter evening and uh, a more focused evening. And because of the needs of the death, it really did help me focus the story. And I also made Mark, the common denominator between the hearing audience and the deaf audience is the written word. And so I went right to the text. I had Mark Twain telling us the story of Huck and Jim. Now, Mark Twain was a hearing actor. Huck is deaf. So Mark Twain voices for Huck, which indeed he is the voice for all the characters in truth. So once I found that hook, it was a, it was a very easy journey. That is a very special, very interesting case. Um, we have a couple, a number of other very interesting um, situations that people on the panel have, have worked uh, on. Uh, and I'm gonna ask I'm gonna ask Bobby to tell us about the flower drum song experience. And then Susan has had the experience of doing a revival of Merrily We Roll Along and one of Sweeney Todd with living with living artists um, who did the original piece still around. So uh, let's start with you Bobby. I don't really consider I've ever done a revival and, and I when I go to see a show that has been done before, I want to see something new. And I think if, if I were to be asked to name two revivals that have taken place in the city over the years, certainly the first would be your Sweeney Todd and how radically different your take was on that from the Hal Prince production. And, and so therefore, it should have been done and it should have been seen because she had such a point of view and owned it, owned it in a way that Hal Prince had owned it, but you owned it in your own way. And so often you go to see revivals and you feel like they're just exploiting the copyright because they want the show to keep making money and to have it seen again. And that's perfectly valid and it's fun and it's good to see it, but I want to see something more than that. I want to see the director's point of view and their heart in it. The other one, for my memory, not the U.S., was Carousel at Lincoln Center. That, that was also really special in, in what that man did with that. Flower Dump Song is a, it's a revival in that the score has not been heard on Broadway since 1959. It's largely been forgotten because it has to be done uh, with an Asian-American cast entirely, which uh, in 1959 it wasn't. Larry Blyden who was the uh, husband of the choreographer Carol Haney uh, out of town in Boston was brought in and did oriental makeup, which is something that nobody really wants to see unless it's a George Wolfe production or you know something <laughs> sending that up. Uh, the, the political incorrectness of that is just something that nobody would uh, buy into. 
David Henry Wong is the reason the flower drum song is being done again. He approached the Rogers and Hammerstein organization after seeing Christopher Renshaw's beautiful production of The King and I and said, let me look at this, you know. Um, this is my culture, my people. He wrote M. Butterfly, and a beautiful play a few years ago called Golden Child, and they said, please do, I believe. And David's first draft was very edgy, very um, uh, pulp fiction in some ways. Linda Lowe, who sings I Enjoy Being a Girl with the Pat Packing heat, had a gun. I mean, it, it was really out there and, and not really producible. And there were some things in it. Uh, May Lee, the character that Leia Falanga's playing out, her first song in the show was I'm Gonna Like It Here, which was sort of the song that Rogers and Hammerstein wrote as a way into this character. And he wanted to put it at the end of the show, and, and I convinced him that this was an introduction song. It needed to take place in scene two of the musical where you traditionally find out from the people in the show, what do they want? Where do they want to go? How badly do they need it? And so David and I really kind of fell in love with each other. And I said, I have an idea for this. I'd love to make this the Chinese fiddler on the roof, if you will. Um, meets Gypsy a little bit by putting it in a, a, a backstage context. There was something years ago called the Chop Suey Circuit, which was the nightclub circuit around the country that basically exploited Chinese Americans um, who allowed themselves to be sent up, if you will, in numbers like Chop Suey and uh, poking fun at themselves, but in a way carving out a place for themselves in San Francisco that gave them pride and um, allowed them to go on stage and, and, and feel that thing that other people did in musical comedies throughout the country. Um, we borrowed one of the songs from the catalog of Rodgers and Hammerstein, uh, something from Pipe Dream called The Next Time It Happens, which also was borrowed for State Fair. We'll put that song almost anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> These guys didn't write a lot that they threw away. They were so smart. I mean, there's not a trunk of stuff that they cut in Boston. If anything, Flower Drum Song is a small score. Um, the original production had like four or five reprises in the second act. Not a lot of music. It was when um, Oscar Hammerstein was ill. Amazingly, he went on to write Sound of Music before he died, but uh, it's, a, it's a slight score. So we have those problems that we talked about in the, the previous thing of the reasons to come back for the second act and what's that 11 o'clock number going to be. Um, Anyway, I'm just rambling. No, 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 no. <laughs> ram, ram, ramble on. In, in, in particular, um, how do you, what 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 Bobby and, and David have done here is they've taken the existing score of Flower Drum Song um, and given it a completely new libretto. Um, and um, if you could maybe talk about. Um, the, the, the difficulties of, 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 of putting the songs in the right places? Sure. Um, one example that I, I'm particularly proud of is a song called A Hundred Million Miracles, which used to be in like scene four of the first act. And this little girl came to America as a stowaway with this little flower drum that her father had given her for begging. So she plays the drums in the street and sings this song, which is sort of a nursery rhyme. You know, it's a silly kind of throwaway song about the birds and the bees. And I suggested to David that that could, in fact, be our tradition. That could be sort of the, uh, um, the mantra of the show, that everybody in this community of players putting on the show 
bought into the concept that if one believed in oneself that a hundred million miracles were possible if you were true to yourself in the journey and it was such a radical thinking of using that song like that that is the front and the end of the show it's how we get in it's the wedding at the end of the show uh, Love Look Away was sung by this tragic character who was a seamstress who we've completely taken out of the show and given that to our leading lady in the second act um, Fantan Fanny is a big showstopper we hope in the first act which had been nothing more than sort of a crossover music so we he really had some great ideas to, to take this existing puzzle. And it, it is frustrating. I, I much prefer to have those people in the room. Uh, I know there's a moment in the second act that if I had the honor to sit in front of uh, Mr. Rogers and Hammerstein and say, please write me a song called My Fortune, because she ends up in a fortune cookie factory going through other people's fortunes. And it's, it's, we don't have that moment. We were, we're struggling with we know what that song would be in the second act, but we can't get it. You know, it, it's easy to say, oh, it's a bunch of work when the composers are dead and there's nobody else to argue with you. But it's really not. Um, and, and we're hoping all the time that we're making them happy you know, with our choices. And every once in a while, we'll become aware, I don't think they'd like that. That's not something that they would want to do. Um, so we're careful. Indeed, and I have to say, from the, from the viewpoint of the, of the Rogers and Hammerstein organization, we've enjoyed the collaboration thoroughly. Uh, Bobby, why don't you talk a little about working with R&H? And, uh, uh, you know, no holes barred here. If there are any problems, we'd like to hear about that. <laughs> well, there have been no problems. I mean, um, it, it's been a great collaboration, because this isn't the sound of music or South Pacific. It doesn't have that cachet of their big five shows, which sell themselves, and everybody knows. I don't know if any of you saw this incredible concert the other night at Carnegie Hall. They did Carousel with um, Audrey McDonald and Hugh Jackman. I mean, you don't see things like that. It is the most exquisite evening of music and uh, words and emotion. Um, and Flower Drum Song wasn't being produced, and it has not had a big commercial production since its original run on Broadway. So uh, I think everybody at R&H, led by Mary Rogers, and I, I was able to meet with Jamie Hammerstein before he passed away, wanted this to be done, but knew that it was a radical experiment and didn't want either David or I, both known for sort of being to the left of things, me with Sideshow and God knows what else, and David, a very political figure uh, about Chinese-American culture, wanted to make sure that we weren't ready to create something that would be at odds with the credo of these two men and what they wrote. This is a feel-good show, but it deals with, um, deals with the stereotypes head-on. We do not shy away from it at all. We do the numbers with the chopsticks and the fans and the girls as anime wongs. We made the agreement that we needed to go there, much in the way that George Wolf did in Jelly's Last Jam with uh, a number that Susan was talking about earlier called the Coon number that he cut in previews because it was, in fact, too dangerous, they felt. We're not doing anything quite that dangerous, but we're also not shying away from it. And, um, you guys have been very supportive. We've come in a number of times and said, there's got to be another song. There's got to be something on the floor they left behind. And we've <laughs> dug up every lyric he cut, but he cut them for a good reason. They're not as good as what's in the show. And that's where we feel we'd be crossing a line by inserting something back in that that man cut. So um, we're, we're careful, but it's, it's a very different situation than being given South Pacific and no who can improve that? You just are going to do it. So it's... 
very rewarding. Actually, actually interestingly enough, Trevor Nunn um, believes he did improve South Pacific by going by going back to the scripts that um, Roger Hammerstein gave him. Sorry, not him. Uh, it went into rehearsal with in the original production, um, and Trevor went back to that and has given us um, a redefined uh, South Pacific, which. Uh, probably won't get seen over here. I think it was one of those things that, you know, you do once and then you decide that maybe they, the reason they made the changes that they made in rehearsal <laughs> was because it needed those changes. Um, Susan, tell us about um, working with, on a revival with living authors. Um, it, it, well, it's interesting. When I did Sweeney Todd, um, actually uh, one of the authors um, and uh, but uh, Stephen Sondheim was not around. He was doing the lectures in London at the time. So um, it it was it actually Rice and Hammerstein have somebody at Rice and Hammerstein is very influential in that production, which was Ted Chapin, because I was asked to do Sweeney Todd at the York Theater. At that time, the York Theater did all their shows on a basketball court at the Church of the Heavenly Rest up on 92nd Street. And when, um, when uh, Janet Walker came to me and said, um, you know, uh, Sondheim has given us our permission to do Sweeney Todd at York, and, and you know, you've they approved you as the director, I went, what? <laughs> I mean, I had seen the brilliant original production, which was barely 10 years old, and I said, why would I do this? I mean, what do I have to add to this? this brilliant masterpiece, this, this brilliant first production, I mean, yet at the Church of the Heavenly Rest on the basketball court. And, um, you know, $500. Uh, and I thought, this is insane. And I spoke to Ted about it at the time, and I said, this is absurd. I mean, what, I mean I'd be murdered. I mean, what, what, is, what is the point of doing this? And he said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, not so fast, not so fast. He said, read the show. When's the last time you read the show? and put on earphones and listen to the score, just do that. And he said, because if you do have something to say about the piece that audiences have never seen before, it would be quite interesting. So I said, oh, fine, okay, whatever. So I did it, and it was amazing to me that when I just read it, because I don't think I'd ever sat down and actually just read the libretto and listened to the score in a really kind of intimate way, I suddenly felt this was a great love story. And I had great compassion for Mrs. Lovett. Uh, I just did. I felt, I mean, this woman was so crazed by love. And she was doing, you know, ungodly things. But she did them with great passion and for great love. Anyway, so I said, oh, God, you know, my career was nowhere at the time. I said, so what do I have to lose? I have actually nothing to lose. So I'll go do it. And Ted said, ah, yay, go do it. So um, I, I called up uh, uh, Steve Sondheim, with whom I had a, a, a passing relationship, because I had already done um, a little night music, and I had done a production company. So we had, we had a speaking relationship. So I felt free to call him up. And I said, uh, Steve, I've been doing Sweeney Todd at York. Do you have anything you want to say or anything? Went, no. <laughs> okay, fine. And, um, <laughs> well, because, you know, the wonderful thing about Steve is that the show's been done. He had the chance to do the first time. He had, at that point, he said, go do it. You know, just go do it. 
So um, I said, all right, fine. So I went about it. I cast it. We did it on the basketball court. I didn't actually, it, it's very, very interesting. I didn't actually say, I'm going to change what Hal Prince did, or I know better than Hal. It had nothing to do with that whatsoever. That, that was in that production, I, to this day, uh, stand as one of the most monumental experiences I've ever had in theater. I'll never forget sitting there going, oh my God. It had nothing to do with that. It only had to do with personal feeling about the characters and being somehow when you're in that little environment and you only have $500 and you have 14 people, you have to explore it on a different kind of very intimate level and make uh, and, and story tell in a, in a different kind of way. And I just went moment for moment with the piece. And um, Steve came to see it, because uh, Wheeler was gone. Um, Steve came to see it at its final dress. He came back from London. He said, my address. He walked in to York Theater. Have you ever been to that? It's tiny, tiny, tiny. He walked in. He said, where do you want me to sit? And I went, I want you to sit right next to me. He said, isn't that going to make you nervous? I said, it's not going to make me as nervous as you sitting across the room. <laughs> and by watching you take notes. <laughs> okay. So he said that, you know, next to me. And, and I tell you, the man never stopped writing. I mean, the lights came up, the music, but he never stopped running. I was a wreck. <laughs> I mean, I was totally, I was soaking wet. I mean, I think I had hives on the inside of my arm. I went, you know, the lights came up at the end of the first second, but I can't even turn around and look at him. Because I tell you, there were pages of pages. This is a legal pad, and there were pages and pages and pages. And I thought, okay, come on now, you're, you know, you're you're an adult person, you're an adult person, you know, and they turned to him and he was still writing, you know, as the lights came up. They <laughs> said, so, you know, what do you think? He goes, first rate. He had a man of a few words. I said, okay, so if it's so first rate, what is that? <laughs> Go, what do you think, Steve? Totally bypassing me, you know. And Steve would go, 
gee, I don't know, Susan. <laughs> you know, and, and that was a marvelous thing that he did because what he did was he kept empowering me. And, and often he would say to me about something, I don't agree with you on this, but, you know, it's your call. I agree with, but I don't agree with you strongly enough, so it's your call. Or it, there were only one or two things that he did have very strong feelings about, and he was, you know, he's the man who created He knew why he wrote this section or wrote that line of dialogue, and if it wasn't making its point, if it wasn't, uh, the objective wasn't clear, then he was absolutely correct, and of course, I, I more than listened to him on it. What did you do when he said, I don't feel strongly? Uh, well, <laughs> I, did, I did it my way. I did. I did it my way. And, um, <laughs> but, but I had the blessing. You know, I had the blessing. So that was, uh, and the show was a masterpiece. You know, it was what it was. It, it, it was open to so many interpretations. I mean, it, only because of the, the, the piece being so wonderful was it able to sustain a production, productions as different as those two. Um, you know, and, and people often say to me, what made you make that choice? And why did you, when, when Meryl Seacrest was writing his uh, biography, she called me up and said, that now, you know, there's this choice that was so different than, than Hal's. What made you change what Hal did? I said, I didn't change what Hal did. I didn't go back to change anything. It's just what I personally felt about that moment. It just came to me as we were doing it. It just evolved. It was of the moment. And, um, you know, when I had support to do that. I did ask, I did ask for a rewrite, though. I did, I had the absolute stupid innocence guts to ask for something. And, and interestingly, Steve was not in disagreement with me, but he said it was a point that he and Hugh Wheeler had discussed over and over again, and he felt very strongly that with Hugh not being there, he could not go against Hugh's wishes and and do it. And I thought that was an amazing, classy a bit of loyalty. The only cha real big structural changes we made was we made some cuts, which Steve had asked for, uh, which I didn't know that I could do. He said, I've always wanted to cut, you know, uh, he wanted to cut the little overture section, which we did. He wanted to cut a section of the barber, one whole section of the barber, which we did. And I wanted to put back in the, um, the judge's flagellation, uh, which he allowed me to do, which I thought just was extremely important. And that, that was that experience. With Merrily, of course, Merrily was a show that had gone through many incarnations and was constantly being rewritten. And um, so we actually, with, with George Firth, we actually worked on that show during the production prior and the pre-production. We actually, uh, they actually did rewrites and certain restructuring pieces, and that was a, a very, very interesting project um, in itself. Of course, I was a little more sure of myself then, too, so I was uh, willing to come forth with, uh, with uh, more ideas and, and not afraid to speak up all the time. Um, but in both instances, I learned an amazing amount about, about collaboration and about generosity and about um, not being afraid to speak up, no matter how stupid you think the idea is. It's, it's amazing. From stupid ideas often come brilliant ideas, and or it gives someone else an inspiration to do whatever. Um, um, I, this is perhaps a little more delicate. Maybe, Jeff, could you tell us a little more about doing the revival of Greece, um, where, again, I think you had, you did have a living writer. I don't know if he was around. 
He was around, yeah. Um, Jim Jacobs. I always, anyway. Jim was not a fan of the production. Um, in many, I, I, I think his quote is, you've ruined my play. But I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm like, but we've run four and a half years. You've been a little bit He goes, oh, this runs everywhere. This runs everywhere. <laughs> well, it took nine tours before this, this one actually came to New York. But so it doesn't always have to be that agreeable. And I pride myself on uh, the collaborative process is everything in the theater. It's everything. Uh, I'm of the school, the best idea wins. It doesn't matter who, you know, the best idea wins. You have an idea, tell it, you know, it's, and we're all working on the same thing. The play is the thing. Um, so Greece was difficult in the sense that uh, Jim at some point had to just say, okay, we have to do it. And that was a little precarious knowing that he wasn't really a family. He was so close, you know, he married, you know, one of the girls that played Marty. He, I mean, his life is Greece. He travels around seven days a week and talks about Greece. He lives Greece. That's hard. I mean, you know what I mean? Greece is his life. Greece wasn't my life. Uh, to be honest, I mean, this is going to sound terrible, but there's times in your life you, you have to take any and all jobs that are offered you, so you save your money and save your money, so the time comes if you do have something that you believe in in your heart, you have the resources to try to get it out. And to be honest with you, Greece fell into the category, um, with all due respect to Jim and all of the world that loves it, I was not a huge fan of Greece. Uh, to be honest, I have not yet done a show in the city that I think is reflective of my taste. Um, I've done shows, and they've been great for me, and they've been great jobs, and I've learned a lot. But I haven't done one that, I, that I'd be waiting at the box office to, if I was just you know, a fan to buy the ticket to see it which is an awful thing to say, but it's true. Um, so in many ways, even though I've been doing this a long time, in 25 years actually in the business, I feel like I've really yet to do what I'm here to do. It's, you know, it's kind of an inter interesting at 41 years old to feel that way, but it's also very invigorating to feel that way as well. So Greece, knowing that he didn't really like the concept we had on the show, uh, he did step back and just say, go basically do your thing. And for me, the key, what Susan said, was intimacy. I was trying to think what I could say to you to help with the revival situation. The key is what you can do when you're doing a revival is to get rid of all of the visuals that you have associated with the show. Go just to the text. Because that's what you can bring it, the intimacy. Working in this 99-seat theater, I found it was more, the feeling had more of an emotional impact. For instance, when I look at the key to Big River on Broadway, everyone talked about this raft that moved all over the stage. They had a real raft on the Mississippi River on a Broadway show. They talked about the raft. And I'm thinking, We're, we can't have a raft, our raft can't move. So they stood still. And there was negative on, there were four panels on each side of this 8x8 platform. And all they did was flip the panels over to create a negative space. And on the underneath side was blue. So without moving, all of a sudden, they became, in the middle of the Mississippi River, look again, I just <laughs> goosebumps, the intimacy of that and the depth of feeling, I don't know if it's better than what they did, but I'm telling you, it had an emotional impact, and it all came from the story and the lack of having any preconceived visual ideas. 
So I think the intimacy of the material, which is what she spoke of, read the script, put on headsets, listen to the music, and let that lead you. Because you have different eyes than the original designers. I think that's going to be the key to your interpretation of a show that's already been created. Um, and just about also when you, you do the revival, how many changes can you make, et cetera? When you're dealing, of course, when you're dealing with live authors, it's much easier. They're right there to speak to. I find doing revivals with live authors to be, uh, I've had great experience with it, have not had difficult experience with it. I think dealing with what I call, with the actual exception, not just saying this because you're here, with the exception of Roger Hammerstein, which is actually has the relatives of dead people who know what they're talking about, who are theater people. So when you're, when you're asking for something, you're talking to people with actual knowledge of what goes on in putting the show. That doesn't always happen, by the way. does not always happen. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes you have whoever is running the estate. Sometimes it's a relative. Sometimes it's a 100-year-old lawyer. Um, I'm not joking. Um, and, and you have to sit there and have them say to you why this number has worked this way for 50 years. There's no reason to change it. You know, or I've been told you're dancing on the grave of this person because you want to change something that this person has done. I said, no, actually, I'm not dancing on the grave because, to be honest, if that person was alive today, they wouldn't do the show this way. So, you know, there's, there's, it's, I find that much more difficult. And you really, really need to get in there with all your, your case points, you know, there and fight with all your might. And finally, you know, if you're fortunate enough, they go, fine, but it's not going to work as well as it did 50 years ago. <laughs> you know, whatever, you do it. Um, I did a production of Fiddler on the Roof at Stratford Festival, and I had to work tooth and nail to get the rights not to do Jerry Robbins' direction. Not the choreography, the direction. They wanted me to repeat the direction. I went, why would I do that? What possible interest would that hold for me? Um, and well, because, you know, did it. And, and that was, you know, an instance where I said, you know, this, this is not, this is not protecting Robin's interest. He would never do the show the same way. He would come in there and things would come to me. You know, it's been so many years since he did it. We've, we've done shows that we've done before. And you, the second time around, you go, oh, Guess what? I have a whole new idea for this, where I see things I didn't see before. Um, and I finally got the permission to do it, and all three authors, bless their souls, made their way up to Stratford and saw it. And they were so wonderful about it. Not because they thought it was better than Jerry's. It was just different. It illuminated other things. And for them, that was wonderful. They hadn't seen the show done differently in almost 50 years. So for them, it was, it was a great revelation. Did you um, change the text? Or? I did. I did one. I said to Joe Stein, I defy you to find the cut. And he couldn't. I made one cut. Can I ask you a question? Because my mind is a little vague on this. We worked together on Annie Get Your Gun. What was it like from the perspective of the li living relatives dealing with what we wanted to do and what? Uh, that's a very good question. Do you all understand how it works when we're in school and high school? You get the rights, you get your show, you do whatever you want. No one comes to see. The difference here is they watch everything. 
you know, things you didn't even think that, you know, that they're watching. So I learned that really on, more on, and to get your gun than I did on Greece, because, like I said, Jim Jacobs is not like a life in the theater. He wrote Greece. Right. There's a difference. Well, yes, I don't, I don't want to. <laughs> Thank you. I was trying to be really kind. <laughs> When I didn't get your gun, um, R&H represents the Irving Berlin estate, um, which consists of Irving Berlin's three daughters, who are variously sophisticated about the theater, um, becoming more so. Um, and the, uh, the estate of Dorothy Field is represented by a hundred-year-old lawyer, who's, who's actually pretty sharp, but also by David Lom. Um, who is the son, son, of, da son, son. of Dorothy Field. Who wrote the book. Who wrote, who wrote the original book. Um, and the way we like to proceed at R&H on a revival is that when, when, we, when we pick the creative team, we pretty much put the property in their hands. Um, I, I mean, as, as my boss, Ted Chapin, says, the only power you have is the power to say no. And believe me, you don't want to be saying no to artists who are working on a show. You want to be saying yes. You want to, you want, you want to figure out a way. You know, if we could find some trunk songs for you, Bobby, we would find them. Unfortunately, Mr. Rogers and Mr. Hammerstein used everything. Um, but um, from, uh, from the viewpoint of an estate, you, you, you pick the people to do the show and you let them do what they want to do. Now, we had, there were some disagreements on Annie Get Your Gun. There were a couple of musical moments. I was just going to say, here's something that you would think, it never even occurred to me that was anything other than that it could be wrong. We're looking at the number called um, My Defenses Are Down. And if you listen to the original song, you know, My Defenses Are Down, it had this kind of a groove to it. And I always think we have Tom Wopat, and we're looking for something that had a little more sort of masculinity in it at this point, because he did just, you know, he was falling in love with this girl, so we wanted that sexual thing to come out. And I've always been a fan of Jack Coles and Graziella and I, who's the director and the co-choreographer. We thought it'd be great to do like a tribute to Jack Cole and be like, my defenses are down, whack, buddy, put out and a whack with these trumpets, glasses, just like, right, the orchestration. Well, they, this was a huge thing after the show, the, the, oh, uh, the hated, daughters. They hated it. They hated it. <laughs> they hated those trumpets. And if you want someone to go down, like, my defenses are down, boom, you want that to be, you know, if you want him to go down on his knees, you want to hear something that scores that. So it meant if we couldn't do that, we'd have to re-choreograph the whole number. And that was an interesting thing to learn, that it could get to the orchestration of trumpets going like that. And they were kind enough, I must say, in their defense. I don't know how this happened. Or I still have my legs, but they, <laughs> they did give us permission, thank God, to do that. Uh, sure. I mean, at the end of the day, um, if, if, you know, if you're in a state um, and you've allowed people to do the show, you've got, you've got to trust them. Uh, what, you, what you have, you know, Ted says it's the power to say no. It's, it is, in fact, only the power to try to persuade. And interestingly, Susan was saying, you know, how do, you, how, how do I persuade um, authors to change things? Um, and from the viewpoint of the estate, it's more how can we persuade a director or a choreographer right. that there's something that should be different? And if we can't persuade, we generally back off. Um, 
I mean, there, there were things in Sound of Music that I know that um, that were, I mean, I was fortunate I had to present, as you do, I had some desire to make some changes in the revival, and I presented these ideas to Jamie, with the, again, to Jamie and Mary, and uh, to Anna Krauss, who was the uh, widow of the, of the author, one of the authors. And um, it was an interesting lunch, because, I mean, this was an icon show. And uh, I was making a fortune. It didn't need this revival. It didn't need this revival to make money. And um, I had to present the ideas, my reasons, and why, why do you think, why, why, why. And I was, in the end, allowed to do things that I know certain of those people disagreed with. But they let me go forward with it. And they said, okay, fine, do that, do that. And I was, um, I, I know I even got from, um, from Ted, right, uh, Oscar Hammerstein's workbook for the show, which was so fantastic to read, to see the evolution, a copy of the work, the evolution of the lyrics. It was so helpful to me to get inside. You know, this another thing with the revival. You're so familiar with the songs, you take them for granted. You go, oh, well, you know, the sound of music is the song. Well, so the lyric we all know is it whatever. And then you read it, and then you read the changes that were made, and you read the choices that were made in the lyrics, and you go, oh, for heaven's sake, now I understand what that is. It's like a lark that was learning to, to pray, like a lark that was learning to pray. You know, but it's, it's incredible. So um, it's, there are, you know, there are moments that suddenly are, are just little light bulbs go off you, things that you know by heart and you have quoted your whole life. Yeah, well, and the changes that Susan made in the text of The Sounds of Music, in particular, putting putting my favorite things into the bedroom, was that, was that um, she's the last person who's ever going to be allowed to do that. <laughs> um, <laughs> not that there was anything wrong with it. It was, it was more like the movie than like the original stage production in that, in that small regard. Um, does anyone have something they want to? Yeah. Oh no, not really. Uh, no. Well, then, in that, if, if if no one on the panel has anything, uh, well, yeah, let's take questions. Um, Jeff, who were you? Which, who were you looking? At? No, I just saw that lady with her hand. Oh, okay. So. <laughs> um, the question. Thank you all very much. Very interesting. I'm a director myself. My name is Brian Wharton. Yes, I just said my name was Brian Wharton and thanked them so much for what they were saying. Um, what uh, occurred to me, and I, I realize it's because it's a much less done play, Flower Drums Home, but I just wondered how you ever got them to uh, listen to you and accept actually well, they didn't listen to me, and they would probably never listen to me. David Henry Wang is sort of the, the one to do this. The question was, how did we convince them to allow us to rewrite this book? And I, and I think this, this brilliant Tony Award-winning playwright was the key to it. He, I call him my bulletproof vest, because if, if I were to have come up with some of these ideas without David on this show, with his point of view and his pedigree, I would never be getting away with it. In fact, he's the reason entirely this has happened. Um, I, but did he literally, I mean, you said you worked these things out in process, in collaboration, so when you first went in, or he 
both of you went into talk about it, what was actually presented that could prevail on them to pay attention? Um, our intention to do something creative. We did not go in and getting permission to do this with a finished product. They gave us the leap of faith, like Vicky said. You know, they trusted David. David trusted me. It, it all seemed to work out. And the expectation was that we would come up with something valid, but we didn't know that we would. And we did our first reading four years ago, followed by another reading, followed by a workshop, followed by an out-of-town regional, which will hopefully be be followed by our opening this year. It's been a very long road, and they've been involved in every step of the way. There's still a song we can't seem to find the right place for, or the right character to own, which is a favorite song of Mary Rogers. And we're trying to put it in, but we're working awfully hard to accommodate the song, whereas everything else seems to have organically found its ownership and its specific place. So it was a leap of faith. We didn't go in and say, this is our idea. It was, would you give us the opportunity to figure this out? And Bobby, if I'm not mistaken, it was David came to us originally. Didn't Ted introduce, introduce you to David on That's the project? Right. Yes. Well, I have Ted to thank. Uh, <laughs> yes. Thank you. Yes, uh, we're talking about directing new musicals as opposed to revivals. This is a question for you, Robert. Going into the Scarlet Pimpernel, that was like that mixed with a cast as well that was doing a show. Right. What, what was it like navigating the waters of revising the show along with the production staff and cast? That was really treacherous, to be quite honest with you, and, and it was a bit of a high-wire act. Sideshow had just closed in the same season. These people had this musical that had, you know, a variety of tally how many reviews. The show got good favorably. It was like the Scarlet Pimpernel got 19 unfavorable reviews. It was, but it found an audience, whereas my show didn't. It found an audience and had producers with very, very deep pockets that were intent on keeping that open. Eight months into the run, they said, we want to make this better. And they came to me and they said, would you come in here and fix the opening number? They brought in some other choreographers to do that who hadn't been able to do it. I said, this needs more than a tweak and a fix and a better button at the end of this number. I think the book is the problem. And uh, the book writer agreed. And we basically wrote a whole new book, came up with an opening number that had been buried in the second act as underscoring called Storybook. But I said, if we put this at the top of the show, it's going to let us off the hook. It's going to tell the audience, we don't treat ourselves seriously. This is make-believe. This is a little fable. And, you know, it set up the love triangle. But it, it was tricky because we had to let some people go. And we were rehearsing a different version during the day. And then they were going to the theater at night during the old version with some of the cast members that weren't being brought along. Then they closed it down. And we went back into a tech for 10 days and reopened. And they promised me we're not bringing the critics back. Because I said, you know, it was like Joe Sweeney talking. Why would I want to do this? I, you know, why do I want Ben Brantley, who had liked me so far, to come in <laughs> and see this? But um, I wanted to work. And I, I, I kind of like dangerous situations. So I did it. And we pulled it off. And the reviews all came back. And it was a better show. It was a better show. But not a, a situation I recommend to anybody doing. Um, but it was an example of total collaboration with the, the staff there. They were terrific with me. There were songs that Frank Wildman had recorded for his wife, Linda Etter. Rachel York and I said, why is this song in the second act? It, it, it makes the song redundant because we just talked about the same 
themes and the same reports that, well, you know, I had written that for Linda six years ago for an album she did. It hadn't been written for the show at all. And, you know, we cut it. So it, it was a great experience for me. I was lucky to do it. Yes. A little louder. I got that. I have two questions. The first is for Robert and the second is for Jeff. Robert, in the um, works of Flower Renaissance, are you and David making um, changes in the orchestration that are incorporating traditional Chinese instruments like the Chinese air school, the violin, and in some of the better music or the pipa? Um, and then my question for Jeff is,
I think they're very good business people and they, they, they know how to smell success and I think they're very smart about that. But they were very nice to let Grazi and I kind of do what we do, you know. <laughs> yes. Um, I wanted to ask you about uh, Sunset Boulevard. Ah. This was a, a tour that you did that followed on the heels of a very different Broadway production. <laughs> and uh, so in a way, you were reviving this piece. But at the same time, it was a, since it was on the road, there was an audience seeing it for the first time ever. Right. And it had a preconceived notion of it. It was it was a very different production than the original. Did you see it? Yes, I saw both of them. Sorry. Yeah. So you know it was radically different. Yeah. Oh, I felt that you were. One thing I felt about it is that when I saw your production, I felt that people could do it in the regional theater, actually, which I thought was an important. I don't know if that was your an well, idea back to your goal I, to do a doable production of this. Right. Piece, I think undoable when you saw Exactly. Um, that actually wasn't the, the the mission was to make it possible for the show to tour. Because the truth of the matter was the show tried to tour and collapsed after two cities, I think. Um, it was just so mammoth. But now there's a situation where the show had been in New York about a set. About a, uh, you know, when you talk with them, everyone talks about the staircase. Um, I, when they approached me to do the, the show, I, 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 was, I was amazed. <laughs> But, you know, to fly you to London, meet Andrew, meet, you know, Christopher Hampton and Don Blackwood. Okay, fine. So um, I, I got on the plane, and again, I did the same thing. I, I said, you know, they said, please, would you just meet and talk? I said, I have nothing to say about this show. Um, I put on the headset, I, and I was crying. I mean, I was just crying when I listened to it that way. I, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that I was moved at all. It was the last thing I thought going to happen to me. Um, and when I got there, one of the things that troubled me, though, was all the recitative. I, I'm not a fan of recitative. I mean, I think if you're going to sing, you need to sing about something that's big and passionate and very emotional. I don't think you can sing about uh, uh, five or say it's about a cup, give me a cup of tea, unless the cup of tea has poison in it. Then you can sing about it. <laughs> yeah. But you can't just sing about give me a, a, a cup of tea. And there was a lot of this show, and I thought it bogged the show down, and it, it actually made it a little silly sometimes. Um, and I met um, with, actually, Christopher and Don, because it was them that I was asking the most of, and they were totally relieved. When I said, you know what, there are all these sections of Mark Down Trip that are interesting, they sound to me like dialogue, and they went, yes, it is dialogue. I went, well, can we make it dialogue? So you put it back there, and went, yeah. I went, great. <laughs> you know, you, it, it was interesting because I, I think what had happened was that Andrew had watched scenes that he felt needed to be musicalized and whatever. Um, anyway, be all that as it may, I also wanted the show to be much more in the mind and psyche of Norma. And I met with... Um, with Petula Clark in London, who had done the show. She was the last Norma in London. And um, I spoke to her about doing it in, uh, in the States, and she said, but I don't understand. How can I do it any differently than I've ever done it? I can only do it this way. I said, but Petula, you didn't create the role. When you went into the role, you needed to do it 
position your replacement the way it had been done. Because that's what happens with replacements, more or less. You come in and you basically fit into a slot and you need to be in a certain place at a certain time and literally wear the costume the same way and la, la, la. And she said, I just don't know. I, how can you possibly do it differently? I mean, this is the way it's done. And to his credit, Don Black said, Petula, the only thing that's the same are the words and the script and the notes on the score. Everything else can be different. And she was like, well, what, wait a minute. What about the art? She said, everything can be different. You can, you can find it for yourself for the first time. And then I started to really get, listening to him, I said, oh yeah, me too, I can do that. <laughs> can I do that? <laughs> and, um, and it actually turned out, you know, for, quite frankly, for a show that I took for the money, and thank you, I have an apartment because of that show. It did, it did beautifully on the road. It sold out wherever it went, it played for two full years, made its money back. At the end of the first uh, 35 or 40, I don't know, before a year was over, it made all its money back. It's a show that has never made money except on this tour. And, and part of the reason was that we so we conceived it in a much more intimate way. Derek McLean did a wonderful set. I said to Derek, I want it in the mind of Norma. He said, okay, let's talk about who Norma is. He brought me all this. He did, did amazing research on the period, the Hollywood period, the times, the sound stages. And I said, great, let's put it on the sound stage. Let's put the whole show on a soundstage and let it all evolve from that. And it was cool. It was really, really interesting. And there, there were people out there who were not going to like that. There were critics out there who wanted that gold staircase, period. And they were just not going to leave it alone. But let me tell you, the audience didn't care. The audience did not care that there was no gold staircase there. The audience cared that they were concerned and moved by Norma. That's what they cared about. They loved her. They were with her. They felt horrible for her. They wanted to hit her, whatever. But they were moved by it, and that's what got the response, and that's why it kept going. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Hi, this is for you. Um, how, how do the producing company feel, or how do the licensing company feel when people start calling up and wanting the revival version of, of the script? Ah, good question. Um, it's a little tricky. Financial issue there um, because the AFM has a, what they call a rental reuse fee that has to be paid before the licensing house can make the new versions available for rental. Um, so that is actually a big stumbling block um, in terms of making new orchestrations and new versions available. Um, we are actually in the process of um, making the uh, the revival version of Annie Get Your Gun available, we we hope. Um, in that particular case, um, we had done um, a new set of orchestrations for a foreign production um, that weren't subject to rental reuse. Um, so that's something that's probably going to be able to happen. Um, but usually we like we like we like to try at least at R and H uh, to, to accommodate our customers when 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 we can with, with the revival. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I have a question just about when uh, when you're applying for the rights to something, uh, and I don't, it doesn't always come from the director. To do 
the revival. Is it, uh, is it just every case is different? The uh, kind of right of refusal, if at some point the production you're not happy with it, or is it? I mean, I know no one likes to get to that point, but is it something where like RNH always retains the right at some point to say, you know what, we don't we don't like this and, and we don't want to do it, or is it dependent in certain cases, like in, in Greece, you were saying he wasn't happy with it. Did he have the right to close that production, or? Or, I mean, the show is not to, or? Yes. How does that work? Jeff, do you want to? Uh, yes. My understanding is that their God, and at any point, they can absolutely stop the production. Yep. That, that is correct as a technical legal matter. The contracts give the authors an absolute approval right, or even the estates of authors an absolute approval right. But as I said earlier, uh, you know, it's the power to say no. Um, it's not something you like to say, uh, not you know, especially on, on a first-class production where 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 you've chosen the artist. Um, at some point, you have to make a leap of faith and just trust them. Yeah. Um, this is slightly off the topic, but I've heard a lot about scaling down and intimacy and in some ways really getting back to the essence of what was written. In the current producing client. Uh, as you direct new pieces, do you see your ability to bring that to the current Broadway climate, or do you think it can only exist after the big, flashy portrait mechanized Would you be personally feeling harmed to bring that? I think we've come back around. I think we're, we're over to some extent the helicopters and the, I mean, not the, that wasn't spectacular and the, the falling chairs. I think, I don't think it's about that anymore. I think we've gone through that. Not that, not that Broadway musicals haven't always had a kind of splendor to them, you know, um, but I think we're, we're getting a little bit, we're, we're leaving the, um, a little bit of the stuff out, which I, I'm happy about. I think it's much more about how does the set tell the story? You know, how does this surround, how does this environment help me tell the story, as opposed to how can I wow you? And we all hope that we can do both, but let's have the instinct be from the storytelling. Is that? I agree. For my money, that's the kind of work that I'm in a phase where I would like to only do that. Now, will that work? On Broadway, I think that remains to be seen. I don't know the answer to that. I think for, for a director, one of the most difficult things to do is to um, have the scenery and the costumes and the lighting match. Because it's all on paper before you see it. Having that match the tone of the workshop or the rehearsal period. And more times than not, you see a show work fabulously in a rehearsal space and rehearsal clothes where you imagine everything. And all of a sudden you transfer it and you put on the set and the costumes and what happened? Because <laughs> you, you, you go, what happened? So for my money, I'm trying to do shows where there's less risk than that, where there's not that crash factor. So in others, if it means just having rehearsal props and finding a show that matches that material, that's just the phase I'm in now. And I happen to have a new show coming in the fall that we attempt to do that, so we'll see how successful uh, indeed it is. But I love shows like that, for my money. That's the chorus line. That's why the chorus line in many ways will always be the best show because there's not one lie in it. It's about people doing what they really do, where they really do it, wearing what they really wear. 
There are no lies. You don't have to impose anything on it. How brilliant is that? No, it's beautifully said. Audiences have become lazy. It's, it's so much more interesting to me to have an audience help you finish a room, help you finish the connection. The human connection is what it's about. I, I use four bamboo sticks and flower drums on to make boats and walls and prosceniums, and that's the kind of theater I like. You know, spectacles are fun, but when I mean, you're telling a story, it's about the language. Four bamboo sticks. When we have time for one more question. I do it. 
And people say, now, do you get paid when they do that or how do My feeling on that has always been, I remember when I was in high school and things came, and why shouldn't they see the Tonys and do that if it's going to help and teach them? I don't need, personally, this is probably an unpopular thing for choreographers, but it's not that important to me. It's more important to me that it's out there and they're doing it if they think it's appropriate. But it's a very sticky subject. Very, so, it's a very sticky subject. So I don't mean to, you know... Yeah. Because for many years, quite frankly, when, when the stock and amateur rights went out, they went out with production books. They went out with all the direction, all the choreography written down and intact, and they were licensed to be repeated without the choreographer or the director being compensated for it. This has changed um, in the last 20 years. Yeah, well, actually, I mean, the Society of Stage Directors is responsible for directors owning their direction leaving aside the question of copyrightability, which is right. a separate issue. Exactly. So now the, the, the production books go out with only the authors coming for words in it, and, and especially young authors today will be very careful about that uh, in making sure that, I mean, with Violet, Brian Crowley gave me the script that was going to be published and said, hey, have I infringed on anything? Is there you know, anything here that bothers you? And, and he was very careful about it. And, and because we had already discussed it, you can put out a, uh, a stock and amateur version that has all the original material in it, but the choreographer and director are compensated for it. Uh, and that's fine, too. There's, a, there's a, a contract that can be had. We had agreed that we didn't want that, that, that the original production was the original production. We were proud of it. We loved it. And now we want to send it on its way and let everybody do with it what they will. You know, and to this day when people ask me, you know, can you tell me how to do it? I go, no, you tell me how you want to do it. You know, it's open to many interpretations. What a great place to end the discussion of the revival. Thank you for listening to Masters of the Stage. This program was made possible by support from the Stage Directors and Choreographers Society, the National Labor Union celebrating five decades representing the needs and aspirations of its members.